Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Sophia, A History of Belonging, a new historical podcast about the life and legacy of Sophia Dalip Singh. I'm Kim, and I'm a final year history student at the University of Bristol, and I just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to my podcast, which is also my final year history dissertation. When I came across this figure, Sophia, when I was about 15 or 16, it was such an amazing and eye-opening kind of experience because really it was the first time that I saw myself in history. I know that sounds very, very cringy, um, but you know, it's true. She was a British Punjabi politically active woman and when I was 15, 16 and I was you know, discovering feminism and all of that jazz, it felt really great and really refreshing to see somebody that that looked a little bit like me, that had my name, and that was someone that, you know, I could relate to in a lot of ways, being that she was part of both worlds. She was Indian and British. And I think for many third generation British Indians like myself, it can be really difficult sometimes to kind of understand which camp we fit into we're we're very very British but we want to cling on to our Indianness because it's our it's our history it's our heritage our family the food that we eat twice a week um so you know we often have to figure out our identities and the nuances that make up who we are and for me seeing that in Sophia was so you know it was incredible because she was a woman that lived over a hundred years ago And it seems almost, it seems very modern almost to have like this, this dual identity, this third generation aspect. Uh, So it was really interesting actually to have that reflected in somebody that was the goddaughter of Queen Victoria that was a suffragette. So it felt very right then for me to create my final year dissertation project and to create it about this woman and also to bring in the lens of identity. So that's why in this short podcast series, I want to frame key aspects of Sophia's life around this idea of identity to help me build a nuanced view of British history and British identity, specifically a British Indian identity. Each of the episodes will explore three aspects of Sophia's life. So first, her days as a socialite, which is what this episode will focus on, Second, her experiences travelling to India, which ultimately changed her perspective on the world and her position in society. And finally, her role as a suffragette, which was Sophia's proudest feat. And I hope that as you listen to these episodes, you'll find yourself amused and maybe a little bit enlightened by the colourful life of Sophia. And I hope that you will appreciate the nuances and shades of British identity and what it truly means to be British. And for all of my British Indian listeners... I hope that you will find yourself resonating with Sophia and finding little bits of yourself in her like I've done. Before we get into Sophia and her days as a socialite, I want to provide a bit of context as to how the Dalip Singh family actually came under the patronage of the British royal family. In 1843, Sophia's father, Dalip Singh, ascended the throne to the Sikh empire when he was just five years old. He succeeded his father, Ranjit Singh, who was affectionately known as the Lion of Punjab. 
However, by the time he was 11, Dilip Singh had signed over his kingdom to the British, signing a treaty during the Anglo-Sikh War and surrendering his kingdom and all of his jewels, which included the famous Kohinoor diamond, valued at almost £2 million sterling. He was exiled from Punjab, his mother was imprisoned, and he went into the care of a Scottish doctor and his wife, John Spencer Logan. By the time he was 15, he had converted to Christianity, relinquishing his Sikh roots, and learned the ways of being an Englishman, much to Queen Victoria's delight. Dalip soon became a favourite of the Queen, who fussed and doted on her beautiful boy, as she called him. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the 2017 film Victoria and Abdul, which charted the 14-year friendship between the Queen and her Indian servant, Abdul Karim. The Queen was immensely intrigued by the Indian subcontinent, despite having never set foot there. By this time, Dalip Singh, he's 16, with an annual income of £25,000. He had relinquished his Punjabi roots, and he found himself comfortably running in English high-class circles. He flirted with women, he was, you know, best friends with the future Edward VII, and he really felt that he fit in, despite not being English at all. The problem was that... Dalip Singh had to marry well and settle down, but no noble family was willing to welcome an Indian into their fold. But soon it was settled and Dalip married 16-year-old Bamba Buller, the daughter of a German merchant and an Abyssinian slave, and together they had six children and resided at Elvedon Hall, which appeared to be a traditional English country house on the outside, but on the inside resembled an opulent Mughal palace, which is a real interesting representation of Dalip Singh and his family, you know, English on the outside in terms of what they were wearing and who they were socialising with, but on the inside, still very much Punjabi, Indian, non-Western. Dilip Singh had made a life for himself in England. He'd settled, he'd married, he'd had children, and, you know, people in society knew him, and to an extent, they accepted him. But after a while, he became restless, and he became very aware that the life that he was leading was really not the life that he was put on this planet to lead. You know, he was supposed to rule Punjab. He was supposed to be a king. And instead, he is living in a country that pillaged his own country. And he's under the patronage of the Empress of India. And India that is his home that, you know, she shouldn't have really ever been Empress of. She never even set foot there. And it was this kind of disillusionment that Dalip started to experience as he got older, as he lived in England longer. And it wasn't long until he actually relinquished his support for the British and for the Queen and actually tried to take back his kingdom. This was obviously very unsuccessful. He resented his family. He left them. And it was in this very tumultuous family that Sophia was born into. She was born in 1876. She was the youngest daughter of the Dalip Singh family and, you know, she was doted on. She was incredibly shy and sweet and, you know, she kind of brought a sense of calm to the house. And Dalip actually asked Queen Victoria to be her godmother, you know, before he rescinded all of his support for her. And it wasn't unusual for the Queen to have colonial godchildren. You know, Sophia's oldest brother, Victor, was Queen Victoria's godchild as well. And when Sophia was diagnosed with typhoid in 1887, Victoria actually sent her own physician, Dr. William Gull, to Kent, where she was staying. And when her mother and father eventually died, the Queen regularly checked in with Arthur Oliphant, who was appointed to keep an eye on the family, and would send her letters about the children's progress. 
The Dalipsing's childhoods were pretty tumultuous, and Sophia and her sister's positions in society were very precarious, given that there was little hope that they would marry well. Not many British aristocrats were willing to marry Indian princesses, despite their royal titles. But still, the Queen felt obligated to provide for Sophia, and actually granted her and her sisters residence at Faraday House in Hampton Court, which is where they could reside for the rest of their lives. Here we can see that it was actually very important for the British establishment to make sure that the Dalip Singhs were comfortable in Britain and found home in Britain. They'd seen what had happened with their father, you know, Dalip Singh, he came to England, he was brought up to be an Englishman, he embraced it, and then after a while rejected it and wanted to go home and wanted to take back his kingdom. And the British crown and government, they did not want that to happen with the Dalip Singh children. So it was so important for them to be raised properly, you know, by governesses, and to feel like they were supported and secure in England. So this was why it was actually very important for Sophia and her sisters to feel like they had a place in society. So with that in mind, Sophia's coming out was arranged for May 1895, along with her sisters, who were a little bit older, they were 23 and 25, and the three of them were thrust into English high society. Sophia's coming out was an instant success, and she found herself most comfortable running in high-class circles, much like her father did. And her life was a sequence of balls, banquets and parties. She embraced this. She really relished in the attention and and extravagance. Even her servants' uniforms were engraved with her initials, SDS. And she wore the finest fashions and rarely wore clothes past the season that they were in style. She was a real typical, like, English debutante socialite. Kind of no care in the world. You know, parties and balls and ball gowns. And the papers noticed and they loved it and they commented on the stylish princess. And actually it was because of this, it was because of the way that Sophia really embraced what it was to be in English high society, that the British press claimed her as one of their own. Famously, the Church Weekly in 1902 wrote, Notwithstanding her great oriental name, the princess is, to all intents and purposes, a thoroughly English girl. And this is significant because it implies that in so many ways, Sophia transcended her race and she was thoroughly English, despite the colour of her skin and her Eastern name. And this tells us something very interesting about Victorian and Edwardian concepts of Englishness, that in this case, Sophia's class was more important than her race. And her class told us something more about her identity than her race did. And of course, it did help that Sophia never dressed in Indian fashions, she didn't speak a word of Punjabi or any other Indian language. She didn't practice Sikhism, she had never been to India, and she took part in very, very English activities. She was a champion dog groomer, an avid equestrian, and she relished the upper-class circles in which she ran. If you were told about Sophia, about what she did and her position, and you left out her name and her race, you might probably assume that she was white, given that she was in no doubt of her Englishness. So picture this, London in the early 1900s. You know, think Mary Poppins set in 1910. And imagine a London street, or a day in the life. Now imagine a brown woman, and she's dressed in the finest clothes, and she's walking her many dogs in the grounds of Hampton Court Palace. And she's one of the first women to ride a bicycle in public, and actually becomes the poster girl for a growing emancipatory cycling movement. 
Imagine seeing her in the papers and the fashion publications, praising her for her high fashion and her dog breeding. It's funny because it almost echoes Bridgerton-style scenes, where her black and brown faces are brushing shoulders with white counterparts in upper-class circles. And it sounds anachronistic, part of a modern colourblind agenda to prove that black and brown people belong in Britain just as much as white people. So it is strange to think that it is probably more unusual for us to picture this than it was for contemporaries, given how ubiquitous Sophia's celebrity was. And this was a big part of why, when I discovered Sophia and who she was and her position in society, why it was actually very shocking, because my perceptions of London and Britain in the early 1900s were very, very white. Or, you know, you did have black and brown people, but they certainly weren't in upper class circles. And I'm not saying that, you know, Sophia's position was common, it was incredibly uncommon. But the fact that she existed, and she was accepted, is very interesting. I'm not suggesting that because of Sophia's socialite status, that race relations were more benign in Victorian and Edwardian Britain. But I think it should help us to challenge how we see race, and should tell us that sometimes race could be eclipsed by something like class. Sophia's life and privilege was worlds away from the experiences of other Indians in Britain at the time. In the Edwardian era, there was a small but significant population of Indian people residing in or travelling through Britain. And many of these were workers, students or travellers. But actually, a lot of historians have argued that by the 1880s, Indians had been present in society already for around 150 years. You know, works by historians such as Rosanna Visram and Antoinette Burton have written extensively on this. Indians had been present in Britain about as long as the British had been present in India. But many of the stories of South Asians in Britain at this time were, of course, stories of struggle. For example, Indian students studying in Britain experienced a combination of racism and classism. Racial and class prejudice was incredibly interwoven during the Victorian and Edwardian times, and possibly helps to explain Britain's unique racism today. Because isn't it interesting that we're so happy to emphasise the Britishness of immigrants when they are successful, such as Mo Farah, that we're unwilling to extend the hand of nationality to more ordinary, for want of a better word, immigrants. In Sophia's time, there was a special brand of snobbery directed at those who were raised in the colonies, no matter how much they tried to assimilate. They could not meet the standards of somebody who was raised in England. And I'll go into this a little bit more in the next episode when I look at the theory of Orientalism. But here I really just want to hone in on the fact that for Sophia, you know, she transcended her race in so many ways because of her class, and the media was so happy to buy into this. She fit into the establishment. She was the princess of a deposed kingdom that now belonged to the British. In so many ways, she was an emblem of the empire itself. Her family's finances and future did depend on the patronage of the British crown. Fire and her siblings, they were granted an annual income. Without them, they would have nothing. But royal titles would only get the leapsing so far in society. Both Sophia and her father in his youth thrived in upper-class social circles. Ostensibly, they fit into the establishment, but they never truly belonged. This is because their class and status got them into the rooms, but their race stopped them from getting any further. So while on some levels Sophia did transcend her race, her class was more important in terms of how she was perceived. But this was is only really scratching the surface. The fact is that noble families weren't interested in marrying their children to any of the Dalip Singhs. And we shouldn't underestimate this because 
we're still in early 1900s in Britain. Marriage is crucial, it's fundamental, especially to the aristocratic class. You know, this was how lineages continued. So the fact that when Victor married Lady Anne Coventry, which was only permitted when the future King Edward VII intervened and vouched for Victor, the fact that the Queen explicitly told Anne that they were never to have children and urged her to take Victor far away from London is so, so telling. The couple never had children and there was never another Dalip Singh heir to reclaim Punjab. Despite the social circles, the attention and the socialite status, the Dalip Singhs were pawns of the empire. They were superficially part of the British royal family. Technically, they were higher class English people. But this was a tremendous downgrade in status, wealth and position from what they were entitled to in their kingdom of Punjab. We can learn so much from Sophia's status in English high society because it tells us something interesting and perhaps even unnerving about the relationship between race and class in England. It also tells us that the British Empire literally did help to change the makeup of the population and was in so many ways the start of the multicultural society Britain today prides itself on. And there is something ironic about the imperial nostalgia that far-right racists do draw on when reminiscing about the good old days of Englishness, when it was the imperialism of Britain that shaped this country into the multicultural society that it is today. From our national dish, which is literally a curry, to the things that make us quintessentially British, such as our affinity for cups of tea, empire explains so much of our British identity and why we are a multicultural society at our core because even the most English things aren't actually English at all. So the idea of, of Britishness is far more nuanced than it seems, and it explains why individuals like Sophia existed and could embrace Englishness, despite standing out and not quite fitting in, and why somebody like Dalip could embrace it for a short while and then relinquish it and go back to his Punjabi roots. You know, nationality and Englishness is so fickle, yet so strong at the same time. It's such a complicated relationship that we have. This podcast, it's about Sophia Dalip Singh, of course, but it's also about identity. And this episode specifically, focusing on Sophia as a socialite, is a really interesting lens to look at identity through. Her life and position in society can help us to make sense of what it means to be British, what it meant then, what it means now. The Dalip Singhs were intended to rule Punjab and instead they lived under the patronage of the British royal family and were effectively forbidden from visiting their homeland or from even having children which could potentially challenge British rule in India. Sophia, as Queen Victoria's goddaughter, was an Indian princess but a thoroughly English girl. Everything about her identity seems to be contradictory and complex. Sophia was aware of this history. Her father had even attempted to take back his kingdom yet she believed that she was English. Her sister Bamba, with the same upbringing, albeit not under the same patronage of Queen Victoria, didn't ever feel at home in England, and she believed her rival place was back in Punjab. Sophia was curious about India, but she knew her home was in England. Her brothers didn't want anything to do with India. They were uninterested. And this is so interesting, because so many of us British Asians today can see ourselves fitting on this spectrum, perhaps feeling more Indian than British, or vice versa, or enjoying a mix of both, depending on the day. So, for this episode, I really just wanted to offer some context into Sophia's position and upbringing, and also paint you a picture of a British Indian socialite running around at banquets and parties, 
because in the next episode, I want to explore Sophia's Indian awakening when she visited Punjab in 1902 and 1906, and we'll unpick this concept of identity further, investigating how Sophia grappled with her English and Indian identities, which often came at odds with one another. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast and I hope you enjoyed this episode. And before you check out the next episode, see our Instagram page for the episode's recap. And if you're interested in learning more about Sophia and about the long history of South Asians in Britain, then I've got a list of recommended books on that page as well. Thank you for listening and be sure to send me any comments and any feedback. It would be so greatly appreciated and I'll see you in the next episode.